You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 41. History should be personal. It's not just a question of movements or theories. People make history, and often the grudges, the admirations, the love affairs, the the outright accidents. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. Back in September, I had this long discussion with Aaron on episode 33 about the current media environment. That's, you know, new media, social media, podcast, targeted advertising, and how it affects political decisions or political systems and how it affects democracies. And some of that stuff, some of that stuff got really dark. Remember, it wasn't just the elections of 2012 versus 2016, but also we see authoritarian regimes who were at one time caught off guard by this new technology and now use it effectively to weed out dissidents. So it's not clear which side it's helping. I've been saying on this program for a while that hopefully these crypto systems we're building will tip the balance of power in favor of privacy, but you know we'll see. Uh, another aspect of this, though, which I mentioned at the time, is how one party or one politician might think that they're greatest at the new form of media, whether it's radio or television or social media, and then, you know, someone else comes along and beats them at their own game. Now, I threw that out there, but I'm certainly no expert at some of this stuff, so I decided to speak to a presidential historian, in fact, uh, the most engaging and prolific as it gets when it comes to dramatic presidential elections, and that would be David Petruja. David's most recent book is called TR's Last War, which is about Teddy Roosevelt during World War I, and we'll talk about uh, we'll talk about his books on various presidential elections, including the 1920 election, which was one of his earlier ones. And I highly, highly recommend that you go out and get one of his books. At least check out the first chapter and you'll just be sucked in. It, if you go to localmaxradio.com slash 41, I'll link to it there. If you follow those links, you can support the show. But, um, you know, 1920, the book on 1920, the year of the six presidents, was particularly eye-opening for me you know, just learning about the terrorist attack on New York City that year on Wall Street, uh, the 19th Amendment, the, the suffrage amendment, prohibition, uh, announcing the returns on the radio for the first time, lots of the problems and the, and the personalities that come up in history, you kind of see echoes of them today. And that book really hit this home for me. So localmaxradio dot, uh, slash 41 to get all that. Uh, I invited David to come on to the office last week, and we discussed how transitions between different types of media affected presidents, presidential elections, and American politics. There's so many things I wanted to dive into more. You know, maybe next time, you know, there, there's, um, there are so many things I mentioned, we mentioned that we, we could just do a whole show on, but we kind of took the very long view this time, and we talk about radio, TV, cable, social media, movies, all that stuff. And, you know, the, we, we saw the whole narrative, and it fits really well with this ongoing conversation I'm having on the local maximum about uh, emerging technology and what our future might look like. Now, a couple of points before we begin. Number one, I know that a quarter of this audience is from outside the United States. And you know what? I'd like you all to keep listening. Maybe some of you have a particular interest in American politics or American history, but even if you don't, I'm sure there are parallel stories and perhaps different situations that played out in your country. So if you have anything to say about that, email the show, 
localmaxradio at gmail.com. I know it's been a while since I got to emails. Next week, um, I will. We've had a string of guests recently. And number two, I'm not getting into whether these presidents were good or bad. It's not that I want to shy away from you know controversial political issues on the show, but it's sort of distracting from the topic at hand. So we're going to be talking about who's a good politician, who has good instincts when it comes to using media and reaching the voters. Um, you can think they're all garbage human beings or bad leaders in general, and that's okay. Not what we're talking about today. I mean, just one thing. Ugh, Woodrow Wilson. Why did we ever elect Woodrow Wilson? Okay, and rant. I'm done. So coming back to David Petruja, called one of the best historians in the United States, one of the great political historians of all time, and the undisputed champion of chronicling American presidential campaigns, David Petruja has produced a number of critically acclaimed works concerning 20th century American history. His 1932, The Rise of Hitler and FDR, Two Tales of Politics, Betrayal, and Unlikely Destiny, won the Independent Publisher Silver Medal for World History. Petruja's 1920, The Year of the Six Presidents, was honored as a Kirkus Best Books of 2007. 1920 was recently optioned for a six-part TV series by Charles Mathau, son of actor Walter Mathau. Oh, my God. I so hope they do that. I would be... David, if you're listening, if there's anything I could do to make this happen, let me know. (laughs) I really hope that 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 happens. I know it's... it's, I, I know no shop doesn't mean it happened, but that that would be that would be a fantastic show. Um, I'm distracted by, by while I'm reading the biography here. Okay, his historical works also include baseball as well as presidents with Rothstein, the lifetimes and murder of the criminal genius who fixed the 1919 World Series, for example. I'll post post the full bio with all the books on localmaxradio.com slash 41. He's been interviewed on so many platforms. I'll link to the, a more recent one on You're Welcome with Michael Malice that I really enjoyed. But, uh, you know, C-SPAN, NPR, MSNBC, Fox News, History Channel, The John Bachelor Show, just to name a few. I mean, that's huge. So let's bring him up. David Petruja, welcome to the show. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Great to be here. You begin a lot of your books with a cast of characters. Um, and I recently did read the cast of characters for TR's Last War. So how did you conclude that like personality should be front and center when learning history? I think it started with my book Rothstein, and I decided that most people didn't know who the hell any of these people were, and I didn't know who they were beforehand. Yeah, well, who's Rothstein? I don't even Arnold know. Arnold Rothstein was a gambler, and okay. he helped fix the 1919 World Series. I, I did a, a book on him, which did very well, uh, finished as a finalist for the Best Fact Crime Award by the Mystery Writers of America. It got beat out by Eric Larson, so it, it, it took a champion to, to, to beat me out on that one. And um, so, you, but also you're talking about it should be personal. History should be personal, and it should. It, it's not just a question of movements or theories or marginal interest rates or, or stuff like that. People make history, and often the personal matters cause history history to be made. The grudges, the admirations, the love affairs, the the outright accidents, and um, so I, I've always thought that that it should be uh, his story. It should be a story, 
And history is so dry to people. I was just reading yeah. last night how a university, state university in Wisconsin, is junking its history program. It's like, holy cow! A whole I know university is junking its history program. Yeah, it's it's it somewhere Stevens Point uh, branch of the University of Wisconsin, not the big one at Madison, but uh, yeah, I mean. Okay, I know you can't make a living in history, but uh, it's still a sad thing to hear. Yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of people study history and go into other fields, or you know, a lot of people like me like to read history and right. are in other fields. So, um, yeah, no, I'm I'm glad to hear that. And you're right. I, it's interesting how I'm often, or a lot of mathematicians or people in computer science are often critical about how math is taught in schools. Maybe there's a similar. Uh, criticism you can make about how history is taught in schools. It's not personal enough. It's not engaging people. What do you um, think about that? I, I think so. I mean, I, 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 I've heard it enough uh, over the years about what how the people hated uh, learning history in high school, college. They don't take the courses. The books are dry. Maybe it's the fact that the books are so dry mm. that they have to cover so many things and, and then they have to structure questions and essays while so that the books are, are not developed like you know like a best-selling history book yeah yeah and I also like the idea that you know personalities really are give you insight into why things turned out the way they did um, you know oftentimes I mean there's big trends but um, but personalities are in, are important and today we're going to actually talk about the intersection between big trends and personalities, because I want to talk about the intersection of, you've written a lot about presidential elections. Um, you've written, if I get them all correctly, you've written an entire book, I'm sure you know about a lot of other ones, you've written an entire book about 1920, 1932, 48, yes. 60, yes. and 68. Not, not 60, 68. Not 68. Okay, 60. I've, I've Sorry, fought I back thought. popular demands to I, okay. do that from a friend of mine who... <laughs> Every time I see him, says, I write I had it that. Memorized, no, almost. no, no. Okay, okay, but that's still a, a pretty wide range to. And to that pick TR's on. last war covers in depth the 1916 election, which right. gets glossed over right. a lot. Although, although it's it's really interesting. I, you've done so much on that era in the early 20th century, and so I think you have a really great insight into what's going on. And so, like I said, we're going to talk about the intersection between you know, changes in technology, specifically communication technology. You know, as time goes on, these candidates and these presidents are using different technology, different mediums in order to communicate with, uh, with the people, with the voters, with, with the American people, essentially. So um, let's talk about the idea of candidates connecting with voters. You know, um, advertising comes into play, but I want to also kind of get into just how they how they how they campaign, how they talk to people directly. And so I want to talk about the, the media of the time. You know, there's a lot that we can learn and even apply by studying these figures and how they adapted to whatever the new media of the time happened to be. So let's start in the pre-1920 world. Like I said, you've, you've done a lot in that world uh, because that's the world, uh, and, and that's also the world in your latest book, which is uh, Teddy Roosevelt's Last War. So in addition to Teddy Roosevelt, you had several other, you know, White House occupants of the era you've touched on, McKinley, Taft, of course, Woodrow Wilson, I know a lot. Um, so what strategies did these people use to get their message out uh, before there was radio? Or, or was there any radio in that era? Well, a lot of it is party organization. I mean, 
the political parties as effective entities really don't exist much anymore. It's the political action committees and the fundraisers and all that. But the the guys who are county chairmen and ward chairmen and ward leaders, I was an alderman for a while. I know a little bit how it works on that level of the ground. But it doesn't work much like that anymore. And then aside from getting the party vote out with patronage, okay. Uh, you, you get a job. If you, you get a job. Party, yeah. You know, the big job. Especially here in New York City. Exactly. One of the big jobs in, in the country was to be collector of the Port of New York, which means to collect the custom, customs tariffs duties and the guy the most famous guy who held that job was Chester Allen Arthur and later on under Woodrow Wilson there was a guy named Dudley Field Malone who had helped pull his bacon out of the fire in the California election of 1916 that part of, of the electoral race and he was he got that job it was a plum even though these guys would talk about reforming civil service it was very handy and the post offices they'd hand those out in every little town that way and you'd get the message out with meeting the people uh, Washington had a big tour before he becomes president. And then in the newspapers are, you know, we now we talk about we're in, we're in partisan boxes. Everyone right. on one side is watching Fox and everyone else is watching CNN or, or MSNBC. And, but back then the newspapers were designed to be articles of partisan politics. So you had a Whig newspaper, a Republican newspaper, a Democrat, and they would be so officially how, they would be officially designated as such. So the difference is today it's just unofficial. It's unofficial, but it could be really official. They had a magazine called Literary Digest, and you can go read it, and it would it would have compendiums and excerpts of what the various papers were reporting. And in parentheses, it would say DEM period or REP or Democrat independent or independent. But they were they – were, it was officially, you know. So that was the way they got their message out. You also mentioned uh, phonograph records. I didn't – I never heard of that. Yeah, that getting, a- getting into the 20th century, you know, the phonograph records had been around since the 19th. In the 1904 election, it's recommended to Theodore Roosevelt that he cut a phonograph or make a little film of him talking. He says, what next? I'll be doing a little dance on screen. Have you listened to him? No. Well, you, I, you, you the... can listen to him. And, and you know, these were these big wax 78 records that would. <laughs> Am I going to do a dance on screen? It's like, yes, yes, presidents will. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and he would do uh, these, these things would run only three or four minutes and they would be excerpts of of the of the great speeches they had given so you might be able to hear William Jennings Bryan's cross of gold speech or Roosevelt decrying the trusts or Woodrow Wilson there's a whole series of these things which you can listen to on the library of congress website so you can you can hear uh, Warren Harding or Calvin Coolidge would be giving his law and order speech, which was which was a big thing that helped make uh, him or have faith in Massachusetts, which was a, his inaugural address as governor of Massachusetts. And they would they would pass these things out, and people would gather together at political rallies and and listen to a phonograph record. And that would have been probably the first time you could actually hear the person's voice without literally going to you, an event. You had to uh, you had to go to things and going yeah. to things is important because not only the before of election day but 
election day itself getting election returns now now it's like okay we have we don't seem to have progressed any in sorting out election returns yeah it's like recount 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 i i, I was re-watching the uh, uh election returns from 2000 and they were like this is what the polls said in some year passed and they were wrong and now we have much better techniques i'm like this is 2000 no, no you don't no we don't <laughs> it's it's like the weather report yeah, we yeah. keep falling for weather <laughs> reports falling. and polling all yeah. the time um so uh, to get the returns you you couldn't stay home and get them you would go out maybe out into the street this is about in like 1920 and the newspapers would put these giant screens and project onto the side of their building as to what the returns were. Or downtown here in New York at the New York World Building or in Times Square with the New York Times, they would have searchlights and maybe a red light would go on or a white light to show which candidate had won. The Times would put their searchlight in one direction or another. People would go to theaters and in the middle of a vaudeville performance or a movie, people would come out, someone would come out and shout out the returns or would go to uh, parties around the country, not only of a political nature, but just of a social nature. It would be a dance, and then they'd be shouting these things out. And you do not get election returns on the radio until 1920, election night. The first ones come out, uh, KDKA, still a big station in Pittsburgh, and they're doing it from a rooftop. And it gets picked up by amateurs almost in, in uh, Georgia. It gets uh, broadcast around the south there. But it's still very, very small and very, very primitive technology. But it's going gonna, it's gonna to come with a rush and, and change, change just about everything. Now we're into mass communication of a personal nature instead of just reading about someone. Uh, or, or getting, you know, a press account or, or drawing uh, of that candidate. Yes, I want to turn to radio because I'm sure even though, you know, TR and, and Coolidge used these phonographs, they probably weren't, you know, there wasn't the art of being a phonograph performer at that time. Oh, you like couldn't. Uh, the other thing was, say you're addressing these big crowds in person. Yeah. You don't have a microphone system. Oh, that's crazy. Wilson addresses like 100,000 people at a fair in San Diego in 1919, just before he has his stroke. And he does have a sound system, but he has to talk into some big megaphone funnel sort of thing. And he hates it. it probably looks ridiculous. He, he feels ridiculous. <laughs> he, he just doesn't feel right doing it, even though people can maybe actually hear what he's saying for the first time in a big crowd. So things have to – this is one of the things which holds back sound movies. It's like, okay, you, you can record the, the sound, you can synchronize it, but you've got to be able to broadcast it in the theater to the audience. Yeah, I actually it's interesting because my co-host Aaron wrote in a few questions, and one of the questions he asked is, is there a parallel story of the film industry adapting to the soundies after being born in the silent film era? Oh, I'd love to do a did separate show on that. Did learn from their mistakes or struggles, or did they repeat them? Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah the, the, how they have the technologies to do it, but it never quite works. Uh, going back to like the turn of the century, D.W. Griffith has part of a film in 1923, which is part sound, and even the jazz singer is 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 part 
dialogue, very little. So it, it's they just don't think people are going to like it, that it's going to seem yeah. natural to them. That's often with new technology where it, it just comes out. I mean, this was true of the Internet. You can go back in the 90s and people are like, are you kidding me? I got to go on and it, you know, it takes me forever for uh, an image to download. You know, no one's ever going to like this. Yes. The dreaded word, uh, dial up. Yes. Yeah. It was bad. I was, I was one of the first people to be providing data on the internet and it was, you'd spend a lot of time uploading. You had a lot of free time as things were (laughs) not happening anymore. Right, right, right. Um, so, okay, so let's turn to radio. We're going to start, um, radio is going to start becoming um, bigger and bigger. And obviously radio is a particular interest to me. Podcasting is a similar yeah. medium. Um, so uh, I've learned that the presidents themselves didn't actually speak on the radio until the early 1920s. I hope that's correct. That's what yeah. I looked up. So for the 1920s, I guess Harding and Cox weren't really reaching people directly in that way. Not that way, and so, Harding is still doing like a front porch campaign for right. much of the campaign. So, so, so is radio a factor at all in, in 1920 in terms of getting the message out? No, not at all. They, 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 all they, they're, they're barely able to report the returns. You, then you, you don't get them involved in elections, but presidents go on the air. Harding uh, goes on the air on the radio very briefly. Coolidge, as vice president, gives a... Uh, Christmas message in 1922, and the interesting thing about that, was that soon after the death of a president, right? Oh no, that's 1923. He's still vice president, and and he's able to sit home with his wife, not home, but in the New Willard Hotel in Washington, and listen to himself. What's so magical about that is transcription. For the longest time, radio shows had to be live. And this is very early. GE comes up with it. And the technology is not on disc or anything, but it's on film. So it's sound, but not vision on film. And they're able to do this, and they're able to reproduce it. And and the sound quality is actually pretty good, but it never seems to – and it has this crazy name. Maybe it was because the name was too hard to remember. (laughs) But But they don't proceed with this system. He then gives uh, his first uh, state, or he gives a State of the Union address on on the radio, which is a big deal. He does more radio than people would think, and he also does um, essentially a newsreel. He's the first president uh, in a talking film. That would be with Coolidge. Yes. Yeah. Lee DeForest, and he's standing in the White House backyard with a piece of paper in his hand and he reads a message which is actually pretty good about uh, taxes and the rate of uh, return on taxes and economic policy but he's he's got his glasses on which you never see it with his glasses he he must not know this is a picture thing (laughs) and uh, he's reading it from a piece of paper and it's rather dry in the whole thing but they're they're able to do that but you and he will periodically give talks on the radio. Hoover is is in the midst of the Depression. The networks go to him and say, would you like to talk to the people about this? And Hoover, with his innate political sense, says no. And so he, he, he will talk about, like, you know, well, the Boy Scouts came to Washington this week or some nonsense, but nothing of, of any great substance. And it falls to Franklin Roosevelt, 
So he, why why did he choose to do that? Why why no substance? Uh, he probably didn't want to politicize the office of the presidency. I he see. gives only about. He was only going to give about four or five speeches on the road for re-election in 1932. The game is very different as to when presidents can, can campaign. Theodore Roosevelt stays home the entire 1904 election. You know how hard yes. it is to restrain <laughs> Theodore Roosevelt? Yeah. This is not McKinley or Harding we're yeah, talking yeah. about. But he, he would. He went a- out a lot for uh, McKinley as vice president. Vice president candidates could go out, yeah. but incumbents, no. And presidents were very, very restrained. Yeah, yeah. Talking, and this is a little off topic, but I remember you saying so. Event in terms of restraining uh, TR, didn't he want to go off and fight World War One as next president? He did. He wanted to go and he wanted to go and die. Yeah. Um, and and uh, it's it's uh, when he's refused, one of his friends says, uh, he says, you know, all I was asking for was uh, of, of Wilson was the permission to go to France and die. And the answer comes back. Did you make that very clear to Wilson? <laughs> they didn't like each other. No, not at all. All right. So um, it sounds like in the 1920s, uh, the, our, our presidents were using uh, radio technology. Some of them were okay at it, but um, let's go to 1932. It oh, the, like first te- the first television occurs yeah. in the 20s. That's interesting, too. You wouldn't think that early. No, uh, and it's, uh, they would have these acceptance speeches after the convention, and the first televised acceptance, the first uh, political thing, is of Al Smith doing a remote. It's also a remote broadcast from the state capitol in Albany back to the radio station, which is doubling as a TV station, WGY, very pioneer station, which, which is still there. And so it's it it occurs you know very early and uh, a guy again you, you don't think of him as Mr. High Tech would uh, Calvin Coolidge writes a newspaper column after he leaves the presidency and in like 1931 32 33 he writes about television is going to be the next big thing really I would like to do is that article available I yeah would it's like a to- very short he would write these 100 word columns and it's oh. just like you know it's oh. it's gonna come now of that course would be an interesting one to link of course on it doesn't come yeah. for a long time right because of two things the depression and yeah. World War two yeah World War two really grinds it to a halt although you you see in Nazi Germany they have like color television during the war Wow and people would go and listen to them in, or watch this in public spaces, like in a bank or you know, party headquarters or something, which is how television starts up in this country in, in a large part. People would watch television in like department store, you know, showrooms, in store windows, and most particularly in bars. So you had TV in bars before... Yeah, watch the big prize fight. You know, sure. this was like early HBO idea, yeah. you know? Yeah. Any two drink minimum? Or you know, <laughs> either either watch the prize fight or watch Bishop Fulton Sheen. Yeah, yeah. Um, cool. So let's talk about FDR and radio. Yeah. 1932. Yeah, he starts with radio as governor of New York to, to, to go. He's got a Republican legislature. 
Yeah. And he's got to get stuff through, and he goes on the radio with his messages to, to put pressure on them, you know, sort of like Reagan saying, I can't make them see the light, but I can make them feel the heat. Hmm. So he's, he's, he's already been doing radio, and he's, he's good. He doesn't write his own stuff. He has speech writers, and, but he, he knows how to tweak them. Uh, the talks, and he knows how he know he knows how to deliver them yes. to the American people, so, my friends. So he's working on his he's working on his intonation. He's working on the art of the of the radio host. Well, he's a schmoozer in real life <laughs> too. So he's he's good at that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but he, he he does. He, that starts with the bank holiday. Also consider the word holiday. He's closed all the banks because people are scared silly that they're going to lose all their savings. They don't want to call it a bank ban. They don't call it a moratorium. Yeah, a moratorium Hoover was going to call yeah. it a moratorium. Again, yeah. Mr. Not Getting It. Yeah. But let's have a holiday. It's going to be fun that you can't get your money out of the <laughs> bank. <laughs> <laughs> but so he starts that, and one of the uh, interesting things is is how, f- to to my mind, I think to modern time, is how little he does it. If from 1933 all the way to the end of his life, he only gives these fireside chats because they're so informal compared to what had been presidents had given before, and colloquial. He only does it 30 times. 30 times and okay. and people would say to him like you know this this works why don't you do this more and he doesn't want to do it for two things reasons one he doesn't want to wear out his welcome it's still a big thing when he comes on and two he says this is a lot of work <laughs> yeah i go through like a we dozen drafts and i'm tied up for four or five days before i do this and you know i've got a country to run so let's not do this. Whereas now we get, I don't, does Trump do it? I don't think he does it. Obama did it. Every president from Reagan did it. The, the weekly radio address, which really nobody pays attention to anymore. Yeah, I, the, the, they still give weekly radio addresses? I didn't know that. It was that. on a Saturday morning. I've never heard that yeah. from Obama. I've never. Yeah. Really? No one really paid much. And then. I, I know when the press conference happens, when he comes out yeah. and announces that, you know, Osama bin Laden's been killed. I've never heard of the weekly radio address. Yeah. It would, sometimes it would be on a big thing or just yeah. some small bill they were pushing. Yeah. But radio is still very important today, not just for the candidates to go on. Now you have this whole cacophony of hosts and opinion makers and millions of people listening so and now well, podcasting yeah. too yeah talk so, radio is, yeah i i wonder if you had you had political columnists before talk radio sure some of whom were very powerful walter winchell would do gossip but would mix in politics he was a big fdr fan and then he became a very conservative republican i feel like when you hear someone's voice People make a more personal connection. Um, well, yeah, with some and, of these and, radio certain, and when you see your face, yeah, when you see the face, when someone comes into your home, whether it's a a Reagan from Death Valley days and old movies, or a Trump from reality TV, this is a big leg up, which is what surprised me of why Cynthia Nixon did so poorly against Andrew Cuomo in that primary. Right, right. So this was here in New York. Yeah, uh, for governor. Yeah, I don't. Cuomo just seems to have a, a big, lock on, a, on this state. A big bankroll uh, yeah, and a yeah, big yeah. machine. Yeah. 
Um, so yeah, so let's turn to TV. Um, so let's come to TV because in, in, that's big in the in the latter half of the 20th century. Um, I was talking to someone the other day about how the TV era is really long, uh, but it changes dramatically within that time. So let's start with, I guess let's start with 1948. You say, or when does TV start becoming a factor in terms of the, the presidential first, election? The first uh, coverage of a convention is in 1940 of the Republican convention. It's in Philadelphia, but you can only watch it in New York City. That's how few people have television wow. sets. Wow, yeah. Uh, FDR has a television set in Hyde Park. Uh, he was the first president to go on TV opening the World's Fair in 1939. I, I'm almost, I, I don't know if we could figure this out. Like, how much would a television set have cost in 1940? If Four in, times somebody's wage. Yeah. Uh, well, well that's in 1948. Yeah. That's the 48 numbers. Yeah. And the television screen is seven inches. That's yeah. smaller than your damn Chromebook. <laughs> okay? Wait, so four times your wage in a day, month? Like a what? week. For, so a like a, a monthly wage. Yeah, that's, and yeah. and that's if that's a that's a guy in a city for yeah. a farmer. It's 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 beyond reach. Right. And also, you can't. You, there just aren't any any stations. Uh, television marches from east to west, basically. I mean, there's some activity on the west coast, but the stations are in this uh, sort of Boston, the the Acela corridor. You know, yeah, uh, all the way to Washington. Uh, they have to do something like satellite tv almost in 1948 when uh, they broadcast signals up from baltimore to an airplane hovering over pittsburgh and then it's broadcast back down the stations around the pittsburgh area so they have to do all sorts of of strange things to get the technology out when theodore when harry truman goes out to kansas city to vote and get the returns in 48 He's not going to watch it on television because there is no television in Kansas City or in in the heartland at at that point. So there's it's 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 going to come in a flash or it's going to come very fast. So by 1952, where you also get into the TV advertising, and the ads are like real jingles, corny jingles. I've seen that. Maybe they're I'll they're bad. <laughs> they're like little cartoons. They're not yeah. good. And and. Adlai Stevenson, of course, is very snobbish. He doesn't want to do anything on television either. Uh, the ads on TV in 1960 aren't particularly memorable. And often they're very long form where people would buy half-hour blocks of TV. Think of the Reagan talk for Goldwater in 64. It was not unusual for candidates to do hire a half-hour and expect people to watch this, which would have been a, actually a bit of a thrill Nixon does a telethon, multi-multi-hour telethon just before the election of 60 from Detroit. That's interesting. I, the, the only thing I remember, like from my lifetime, or I was kind of young, but when Perot would come on and do those long, yeah, like, yeah. Uh, like what's going on on the TV? That's a throwback like, to uh, people's longer attention spans. Yeah, yeah. What would they be long? Like they would be PowerPoint presentations, but it wasn't PowerPoint. It would be on these cardboard easel or something. Easel. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So I don't want to dwell too much on 1960 because uh, TV being a factor in the campaign between Kennedy and Nixon is is pretty famous and a lot has been said about it. But do you think that Nixon was just not uh, good at it or was it the fact that the TV appearance would be a factor kind of took him by surprise that the, he then improved upon uh, in the future? Yeah, well, he improves and he doesn't improve. Um, 
he was the candidate of the TV age going into that and of debates. He had been a famous debater to get to Congress and to the Senate, and he saves his career when he's charged with corruption, basically, and has to give the checker speech, which has a massive audience, and saves him on the ticket for 1952, uh, saves him to be on the ticket with Dwight Eisenhower and and, uh, be able to go on from there. And then he has a debate with Nikita Khrushchev in Moscow called the Kitchen Debate, where they talk about, you know, the benefits of communism versus capitalism and freedoms. So he's been more on TV than Jack Kennedy has, right? But he he takes it, he, he takes his success and his superiority for granted, and he doesn't have a good strategy. He doesn't talk to the audience. Jack Kennedy has a brother-in-law who's been in the movies, uh, and he, I think Who's he's more, Peter Lawford, one of the Rat Pack, and he's he's also I think willing to take more advice from people. And so he talks to the audience, and he's prepared for this, and Nixon just thinks he can wing it, and he can't. And, of course, he, he, he sweats, and he's sick. He's not well. He's had an accident. He's worn himself to a frazzle. His shirts don't fit anymore. His makeup is bad. But he comes back at the end of that debate and really more than holds his own in the other three. But when I say he's better and worse after that is that if – if you were alive and remembered what Nixon was like talking on TV, telling you about Cambodia or price controls or anything. Very dark time. It was, it was, his presence was just miserable. I mean, you he, see his face, something bad's about to happen. Yeah. I mean, he was, he's just, his eyes are shifting back and forth and he's sweating and he's just so bad looking, which I saw him at the White House when he was president. In person, not super close, but close enough. And he came out and played the piano for us. He was charming. (laughs) He was tan. He was fine. But on television, he just looked grotesque. And, of course, Lyndon Johnson was maybe worse. Really? Yeah. So, And also a lot of, I mean, a lot of bad news to deliver during that Oh yeah, presidency as well. But so. I mean, you can deliver. I mean, but Reagan. Some people are better at delivering. Reagan was a. Uh, I mean, think of how inspiring Reagan is talking yeah. about the death of the, the of the astronauts. Uh, yeah, I, I haven't seen that, but yeah, I would I would take a look. One, let's we'll get into Reagan in a minute, but I, I want to mention I was looking at a clip of nineteen six from nineteen sixty of uh, John F. Kennedy on on the Tonight Show with Jack Parr. And there was something so familiar about it where it was like, okay, the late night host is like fawning over the young Democratic candidate. I'm like, oh, I could totally see that happening today. Um, The – the, and he did a good job, but the answers are, are so different. Like, he was like, why did you get into politics? Why are you running for president? He says, well, we're the last bulwark. Essentially, part of the answer was we're the last bulwark against communism, and yeah. I wanted to spend my life doing that. And it was, uh, oh, that's not an answer I expect. You know, well, Jack was very anti-communist and, and was uh, towards the end of that 1960 campaign was really kind of running to the right of Nixon. Interesting. Be- because Nixon knew what was being planned to get rid of Castro and couldn't say it. And Kennedy was really kind of playing politics. He knew, too. He had been briefed by the sec- uh, head of the CIA. But he's like saying, well, the Eisenhower administration isn't tough enough, blah, 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 blah. 
and and Nixon was incensed by that. Nixon also goes on the Jack Parr show. Jack Parr was like the not quite the original guy, uh, but really an early guy on the Tonight Show. Very engaging, uh, quirky guy, and he had Nixon on later. And again, Nixon comes out and plays the piano. Okay, this was I think after Nixon lost California or the presidency, and he's he's down, and he comes out to, to you so know it's like 60s, Bill it's like yeah. Bill it's like Bill Clinton with the saxophone. Yeah, they come to rehabilitate themselves, and Nixon did this, and Nixon even played a uh, one of his own musical compositions. So he composed the music himself. Yeah, well, he, Nixon was a good 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 little pianist. I mean, yeah. Harry Truman is, wasn't the only president who could play the piano. Uh, okay, so before we get into Reagan, uh, let's talk about the rise in negative ads on TV. Uh, you have these cartoon jingles in the 50s. When did these negative ads really start? The real negative ads start in 1964 with Lyndon Johnson, like he needs to like he needs to run up the score against Goldwater. Right. But the famed Daisy ad with nuclear sure, annihilation sure. and then the hands, which reach out and rip up the Social Security card. So people have been worried about social programs and health care and such, and that's been working for the Democrats for a very, very long time. All right, so let's fast forward to Reagan's time. There was a lot of talk in Reagan's time about how he was the first Hollywood president, having had an acting background. Uh, were there any earlier examples of successful politicians mastering the medium first and then taking it into the political arena? 1980, you know, the Republicans can go on the offensive and, you know, the Team Clinton or Carter is is pretty a pretty weak bunch, and and so is he. And he's he's certainly not the presence on TV coming out with his sweater or something, not looking presidential, not sounding presidential, not being inspiring. And and Reagan Reagan was a long distance runner. I mean, he had run and failed to get the nomination twice before. That that no one has ever done that. And over such a long period of time, he had first run in 1968. And then he comes back and he he, uh, he uses the media. Yeah. He has a daily, I don't know if it was a daily or a weekly radio address to the American people. He would be like a syndicated guy on the radio with these little brief messages. And he and he had a newspaper column. to, to, to So he was always in front of the American people from, you know— from going to Hollywood in the 30s in one form or another. Not to mention going back to the first means of communication of just speaking to people, which he was able to do because he was on the GE, GE Theater. But before Reagan, there's a forerunner of him in terms of, of entertainment, Hollywood going into office in California, and it's a guy named George Murphy. Murphy is almost completely forgotten now. He was a kind of second-rate, second-rate Irish Fred Astaire. He was a dancer. He was a song and dance man in Hollywood. He was a real favorite of MGM's owner Louis Mayer, who was a, who also was a Republican. Was a Republican chairman of the state of California. If you can imagine a movie studio guy being the Republican state chairman. But he pulls the big upset of 1964 when all the Republicans led by Goldwater are getting creamed, and he beats Jack Kennedy's press secretary for the governor, senatorship in the state of California. So he, there's, there's a precedent for Reagan making the jump there. And also one of Henry Cabot Lodge's uh, brothers uh, had been an actor and had been governor of Connecticut early on. 
tend to be yeah. sort of more Republicans than Democrats. For who go from, uh, you're saying Hollywood into politics. Yeah. 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 Well, it almost seems like it's too, it's, I don't, well, most of Hollywood wasn't as, Democrat then as it is now, but it almost seems like, well, if you're a Republican in Hollywood, you might as well, uh, if you can make it, you might as well go into politics versus continuing in Hollywood because your well, the career your success the, is limited. Well, and also you're just an aging yeah. star, right, 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 Reagan, right? Reagan went from A movies to B movies to being the host of that GE theater, which was on the which was on CBS, and that got canceled. That got canceled yeah. in part because of Bobby Kennedy putting pressure on GE, which is why, oh, wow. you know, he Reagan didn't mind JFK, but he really minded RFK. And then to, onto this uh, Death Valley days, which was syndicated. Interesting. All right. So um, let's get in more to the present. As I said, the TV era is long. And so I want to relate what we're discussing to today. Um, you know, since the 80s, we've seen 24-hour cable. We've seen... Reality TV gets so popular, which is really our current president's forte. Uh, it's it's interesting. Survivor only came out in 2000. So that's like it's, it's just a 21st century phenomenon, really. Um, and then, of course, social media and YouTube have been a big factor over the last you know few cycles. Obama really cranks up the social media. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that we're seeing different personalities seeking higher office or, the, or, or people focusing on, on – um, focusing in, in different areas of likability and communication than we otherwise would have well, because it's, of these developments. it's going to be guys who are willing to take a chance on something. Hmm. What was it? Somebody said about Truman's election. It's like he he, he knew he wasn't going to win, so he didn't have to play by any of the rules. And there's a lot of question about did Trump – was he – really trying to win was this serious so when, when, when you when, when you don't care if you win or not you know or you don't think you are you could you could take gambles where a guy who's on the bubble is afraid to 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 go in any new direction it's it's amazing because i feel like obama was very good at social media but trump has no problem with just getting on Twitter and writing something that he knows is going to outrage a bunch of people. You know, Obama would never do that, um, even if he had a thought that he knew he, he was more careful. And you look at this and you're like, that's never going to work. And somehow it works. It's, uh, it's <laughs> gotten to where he is, whether it yeah. can keep him there or not is another question. Sure. But we're seeing, we're seeing a lot of more conventional politicians more play it safe politicians i think getting rougher and rougher on twitter and saying harsher and harsher thing it's it's a medium which encapsulizes and concentrates venom and snarkiness i gave a talk i was invited in 2015 i think to give a talk to the commencement of, of the high school where I had gone to school. And I said, what am I going to tell these kids? I don't, know, yeah. I don't know what to tell them. And then I thought, you know, even then, I knew the internet was getting rotten in terms of nastiness. And I really yeah. warned yeah. them then. It was like... I've, and this was from reading people on yeah. my side of the political spectrum. Twitter becomes big in 2009, 2010. And I'm like, and, you know, there's some nastiness going back and forth in the early days. But then you're like, oh, maybe they'll maybe it'll get better. Maybe they'll fix it. But yeah, by 2015, you're like, oh, this thing is, this thing is off the wall. Well, you're really incentivized to uh, have harsher and more provocative comments 
And the other side then retweets. They, they take people who are a really not very high profile, and if they can pick at one thing on someone from the other side, then they will they will publicize that person and and the you know the followers and everything goes up and the volume goes up and it's it's not gonna end well I don't think. So what did you tell the kids at the high school? I said don't do this. Don't do, do it. Do be kind. <laughs> yeah. You know I started <laughs> I started quoting the New Testament. You know yeah. do unto others. I mean that's uh, well that's good advice. I don't know if they'll take it. Um, yeah, so uh, I, how do we get ourselves out of this mess? I don't, I, that's what I've been talking about on this podcast. It's going so no to be one per- person at a time, but, you know, things do change a lot. Yeah. The, this whole Me Too movement, which can have its excesses, is also drawing back, I think, from a lot of the free-form, do-anything-you-want days. Yeah. And, I am, you know, the 70s and such in the era I remember is certainly very different than what you can say. Or You really have to mind your P's and Q's a bit more nowadays, which is not necessarily a bad thing. I wish, in some ways, I wish people were, were more restrained on a whole range of, of, of behavior. But don't you, I also feel like there's another problem too where I'm constantly, like we're constantly trying to self-censor ourselves. Like, oh, I, uh, you know, I'm I'm worried about what this group is going to think or that group is going to think, and I almost had to deprogram myself a little bit from that because what I have to say is not that controversial often. But like, I had to deprogram myself in the first few episodes of this podcast where I, I'm listening to myself. I'm like, whoa, you should have just gone out and said what you were thinking there, and instead you're stuttering, you're, you're <laughs> dancing around the issue, and that can't that I don't like that either. Well, it's it's a it's a fine line, but uh, yeah, I mean, the political correctness. I I spoke at a seminar in Yale earlier in the year, and kids were talking afterwards at dinner, and they said we're just so afraid to speak out here. I had that same experience at Yale too a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when I was in school, when I was in school in the sixties <laughs> and seventies. I mean, there there were, you know, there were those were controversial times, right? But I don't recall the same sort of 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 look of fear in people's eyes to be afraid to say something, to think something, even to think something. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's a problem. All right, so let's uh, we're pretty good on time. Let's uh, let's wrap it up. What do you think? Uh, is there anything else you want to say about? our current era in terms of communication technologies as compared to 100 years ago. Well, everything is just moving so fast, so I don't even know what the next thing beyond Twitter and uh, Facebook. I guess Facebook is down already. I don't know what's coming next. (laughs) Or or what's going to happen with with cutting the cable and how we access uh, information that way. Maybe we are. And then you read that e-books – Ebooks seem to be going downhill. Something which was which seemed to be the wave of the future all of a sudden is receding, and now the uh, audio books are are gaining gaining favor. People want to listen to that more. When uh, in the nineteen nineties, I was going to be I was part of something which was going to be the next big means of of downloading massive then massive amounts of data. 
and it was called CD-ROMs. Right. Okay. And Lasts mi- for 10 years. Micro- less, I think. Yeah, less. Uh, Microsoft hired us to produce a few. This was for sports and we baseball. We piles of them in the in Yeah. My parents. Basement. Yeah. And it was, a good, it was a good gig while it lasted, but bef- before we knew it, it was onto the internet. Yeah, uh, but technology. I, I, I've, I've thought that technology, and it's, it's changing more now, would change every twenty years. Yeah, you know, you'd go from vaudeville to silent movies to talking movies to television to cable television, uh, and and then the internet and everything like that. And and I think it's we just don't know what the next one's going to be. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So with that, let's um, tell us maybe a few sentences about TR's Last War, which came out recently, and then we'll wrap it up. Okay. And also how to reach you, how to find your, uh, how to find you online, or, or do you have a website or anything? I do. Okay. I'm, I'm you know, tech savvy. You <laughs> I know. know I sort know. of. I had to ask. I couldn't be like, tell us your website. And then, I don't know. <laughs> this is. Um, so TR's Last War is is called Theodore Roosevelt, The Great War and a Journey of Triumph and Tragedy. And it's about his struggles to get America prepared for World War One, to to fight World War One, to fight World to fight Woodrow Wilson, who he hates, uh, to reunite the Republican Party, to deal with the grief of of what happens to his four sons going over to fight that war when he can't. And the war against his own declining um, health and and mentality, actually, even or or, or personality. So uh, it's it's all of those things all rolled into one. And I think it tells a lot of stories that other historians have really kind of rushed through because he's such an exhausting personality, yeah. and you get exhausted writing about him. Yeah. So by the time they're at the end of their life, they're like, oh, let's. Right. Exactly. Oh, okay. Yeah. Let's kill them off. <laughs> um, nothing. Nothing's happening. Nothing to see here. Yeah. Plenty to see here. Mm. So www. David p i e t r u s z a. dot com or Twitter at d p i e t r u s z a. Okay. All that will be. Linked from the local Maximum show notes page. That'll be localmaxradio slash 41. Very easy URL. This is is show number 41. David Petruja, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. All right. So many ideas have been swirling around in my head since we had that conversation. It it really is the contradiction of the era where we kind of build up a social, we kind of want to build up a social norm when we speak to each other, particularly on an anonymous medium or behind the, the, the keyboard, you know, maybe we shouldn't be so nasty to each other. How can we, how can we fix this? And of course, me too in real life. But, and then at the, the, the same time, we're struggling to build up those barriers that we need. We're making regular people more and more cautious and afraid just to speak their mind and say very benign things. So I think I need to think about this a little more and, and see if we can we can come up with solutions. David also sent me the article written by former President Calvin Coolidge in a 1931 column predicting the future of TV. That'll go up on the show notes page. Very interesting. Or I don't know if predicting is the right word. Maybe it's just talking about 
TV as an emerging technology. But the key quote really comes at the end because I think this is this is still relevant. He writes, unless the moral power of the world increases in proportion to its scientific power, there is a danger that the new inventions will prove instruments of our own destruction. If the moral development keeps step, peace and good will have gained new allies. I'm sure you all have thoughts on this. Localmaxradio at gmail.com to email the show. I'll get to emails from the last few weeks. Next week, I'm planning on having a co-host discussion with Aaron again about everything that's been sent in and what we've been learning from these past guests, David and Charlie Oliver from last week. Have a great week, everyone, and have a great Thanksgiving. That's the show. Remember to check out the website at localmaxradio.com if you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. The show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe to The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at Max Sklar. Have a great week. Feel the power.